Well, good morning. I know it's like 11 o'clock and we're actually starting and I know it's going to like drive some people crazy. Some people will still be walking in late. That's okay. We'll get used to it. Um, we uh, are glad to have you with us. There's uh, got a lot of emails and messages this week of people saying, hey, can we come up to the building? And the answer is absolutely. Uh, it's good to have you here and we appreciate you following all the, the guidelines that we need to follow at this time to keep up with the state uh, recommendations and mandates. We really do appreciate that. Um, and we're also so thankful to God that everybody's been so helpful, and we're just really, really grateful for that um, so far. So um, we're going to start out with a, a word of prayer and uh, kind of give you then an overview of what's coming up uh, as we as we head into the school year, and then we'll dive into God's word um, together. So actually, we got some people coming in now, so let me start with what's coming up, and then we'll pray together. Um, we're we're going to be starting a new series this morning. It's a it's it started out as a single message, and it's turned into a three-part series. Um, there's some things that I've been just uh, really contemplating over the course of this pandemic season. And so we're going to start a kind of a bridge series between what we've been studying, uh, where we are now as a church in our current culture, and then going back into the exile in the Old Testament. Um, so that's going to be a little bit different. Um, as far as what's happening at the, at the church here uh, for August, we are taking a bit of a break from our groups. They've wrapped up. Um, there will be uh, a new ladies group starting up um, in September, and we're hoping to have some more groups starting up in September. We're not sure what's going to happen with the uh, other ministries at this point. They're still kind of up in the air, uh, so we'll keep you posted as things um, progress there. Um, and we were reminded last week during our prayer time after the message to be praying, especially for our school districts and our administrators and our teachers and the kids and all of the of what's going on, trying to get that back uh, together for this fall. There's a lot of um, excitement and concern and a mix of uh, just a lot of work in the midst of all that to try to get everybody back to a normal routine or see what it looks like for this school year. So we want to start off this morning and we do want to be praying for our church family but also be praying for our community and for our schools and for our, our government officials and leaders that are making uh, the decisions that they feel are what's best for us at this time. We pray that God guides and directs them. So why don't we start with prayer and then we'll dive into our study this morning. Father, we are grateful that we have the privilege and the joy of meeting together, whether in person or virtually, to be able to spend time with you and Spend time learning about you and your word and your love and your plan and your mission. We're thankful for this church family that we have. And we thank, we're so grateful for all the ways that you've protected and provided for us uh, during the, these very trying months that we've had over the last um, four, four to six months. Father, we just pray that as we uh, think of our country, as we think of our state, um, that you would give our leaders wisdom as they try to navigate this very uncertain time. Father, we know that their decisions will be challenged no matter what they do. And, uh, we just pray that you would give them wisdom and that through all of this, it would cause our leaders uh, to acknowledge their need to rely upon you for guidance and direction. Father, give us the, uh, the integrity and the strength to follow the 
guidelines that they set forth and to be good examples to our community and how we live in the midst of these times. Father, we lift up our school districts and we are grateful for all the leadership that is that, that we have in our schools. And uh, Father, we are just really concerned about the overwhelming task that they have of trying to bring back teachers and students and provide education for, for our children. And we just pray for, just for your grace and your wisdom to be upon them. We ask for health and for safety for the schools that have reopened and those that are getting ready to reopen. We pray for grace and understanding for the teachers as well as the parents. And we just pray that we would find our confidence and our peace in you and uh, not to allow our fears to change the way that we treat and love others. Father, we just thank you for, again, this time to come together. We pray that your spirit would just guide and direct and teach us more about you and the plan that you have for us as your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how are you guys doing? Good? Kind of? So-so? Rough mornings? Now I got people that are, uh, some are getting ready to leave, and some was just, a, you know, the biggest challenge of the week was trying to get everybody ready to get out here. Maybe some adjustments coming back, uh, but it's good to have you back. And uh, we've been talking about exile. We've been, we just got done studying through the book of Malachi, which I had to be honest and admit that I hadn't preached through Malachi before. And I've been a pastor for a lot of years. And I thought, well, why haven't I preached through Malachi? Um, probably part of it was my mindset. Um, I don't know. I, I think of the prophets and it's not like, oh, I can't wait to preach through the prophets. Um, I don't know why that is, but I just found myself feeling that way for years. And I've realized that there's a lot of mindsets that I have that just may or may not be healthy. Um, there's a lot of mindsets that I have that maybe I've uh, either slowly allowed to creep into my life or that I was taught at college that have shaped the way that I view not only the scriptures, but also um, how the church functions and, and probably even how I believe God functions in the world around us. And so what I've really appreciated about not only our time in Malachi, but our time that we're studying in the exile is how it really does apply so much to, I think, some of the things that we're experiencing in today's world right now during the season of pandemic. Um, I, I just think it's providential that we're covering this section of scripture as we go through these times where, like, for instance, the exiles weren't allowed to do certain things as, as a people, as a religious group. And, and I know we've struggled with some of those same things as our government has tried to protect us. We've been like, well, we need to meet and we need to be together and we need to do these things. And so I think in a very small way, we've gotten to experience a little bit about the exile life. Um, but I think that all of the things that we've been through over the last four to six months, for me, they've given me an opportunity to really rethink and to process some of the things that I've considered normal that were no longer normal. Some of the things that I've taken for granted that maybe I should or shouldn't be taking for granted. I think the, in the New Testament, probably the best book that explains the relationship of the church to the exile would be the book of 1 Peter. And while we're not going to actually spend time today in 1 Peter, the book starts out with a message to the exiles and continues with a message to the exiles and refers to, at the end, to, uh, to the people who are living in Babylon 
and refers to the exile. And this, this book really ties in the concept of the church being a modern-day exile. And so what I want us to do over the next couple of weeks is I want to look at the exile and I want to challenge some of the things that we've taken into our culture in America and question some things, process through some things, and see how it would relate to the exile. So we can understand maybe a little bit better when we go through the exile literature, how it really relates to us today as exiles. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, uh, the study of the exile as well as our short um, exile from normal life as a church uh, has widened my lens regarding the church. As I struggled with the frustrations that we couldn't connect and see each other, I was reminded of the fact that Israel was not able to connect as a church body, as a religious organization, for over most of them for over 70 years. Can't even imagine what that would be like. Matter of fact, their temple was destroyed, and then it was burned, and then it was rebuilt. I can't imagine what that would be like. Their worship routines were cut off completely, and they couldn't even Zoom, right? And they had nothing. They, they couldn't WhatsApp each other. They couldn't, I mean, they had nothing as far as being connected. They couldn't have regular meetings. They couldn't go offer their sacrifices that God commanded them to do. They had no way to give their tithes to God and to honor him that way. The Levites were out of jobs. It reminded me that in all of this, as I thought about Israel and the exile, that God inhabits his people, not buildings. That God inhabits people and not geographies. They never cease to be the people of God, even in exile. And while we miss our music, and I really do, to be honest with you, I am so looking forward to having music again. While we miss our music, we can still meet. While we miss our fellowship, we can still connect. Even, even kind of spread out here, we can have part of our church family back, though not everybody's able to come back yet. But aside from what we've missed, and that's really what we tend to focus on, I think, as, as humans, you know what I'm saying? We, what, what don't I have now versus what do I have? Um, aside from focusing on what we miss, it's helped me to rethink what the church is really supposed to be like. Was church supposed to be a weekly meeting with a specific liturgy and music and preaching and announcements? What about the New Testament church that was persecuted and scattered? I think it's a good time for us to challenge our modern North American mindset of church and maybe reimagine a few things. And what I'm going to share this morning, I have a feeling like the messages of, I'm certainly no Malachi, but like the messages of Malachi were meant to confront us and to make us think. It's my hope that as we read some of these scriptures and as I, I make some of the statements that I do, that it will make us rethink some things that have been programmed into us. The first thing I want us to do this morning is to reimagine church. Reimagine church. The word church in the New Testament, anybody know what word it comes from in the Greek? I know at least a couple of you do. What word is it? Ecclesia. We get our word ecclesiastical from it, right? 
And it means referring to, if you actually look it up in Webster, it's, it's referring to or relating to the Christian church and its clergy or its clergy. So ecclesiastical, it's a, it's a word we've actually transliterated, brought into the English language specifically to have to do with church things. With a term like this, it's easy to conjure up images of a grand church kingdom, isn't it? Ecclesiastical. I mean, it's just such a proper term, right? So, so, I mean, I should be wearing a robe and have a hat or something, right? Ecclesiastical. And yet, that's probably the farthest thing you could ever come from in the original meaning of what ecclesia means. The original word actually means a gathering, an assembly. It's that simple. Do you realize that the high school has ecclesias all the time? have gatherings. It's a group of people getting together. Now, in the church world, it's specifically a group of Christ followers who are gathering together. Certain terms come into our language, and they take on new meanings when we transliterate them, um, as opposed to translating them. And I think this is one of them. Church is one of those for sure. Um, have any of you ever read the introduction to the 1611 King James Version of the Bible? Have you really? You're probably, anybody else? Okay, two of you. That's impressive. I didn't even expect that. So they've actually taken it out of the new King James Versions. But if you go back and read the original introduction to the 1611 King James Version of the Bible, it's fascinating. Aside from the fact that they would fail every English class and writing class known to man today. It has got some really amazing concepts in it. And there's a section, the majority of it, that's called the translators to the readers. And in it, those that translated this English from the original languages, so they didn't do it from the Latin, they said they were doing it from the original languages, told the readers why they did what they did and what they were hoping to accomplish through it. I thought it was pretty fascinating. But there's this one excerpt that I really find just I don't know, it's just like mind-numbing to me. I'm going to read it for you. This is in the way that they translated certain words. Lastly, we have on the one side avoided the scrupulosity of the Puritans who leave the old ecclesiastical words and betake them to other when they put washing for baptism and congregation instead of church. What they've said is, we have decided not to use congregation. We use the word church. We don't want to be like the Puritans who do this because they have left all form of normalcy for, for what religiosity should be. And they use washing instead of the word baptism, another one that we transliterate into our language. We take words and we bring them into English from other languages called transliteration, and they take on their whole new meaning. We translate the rest of the Bible into English that we use. So baptism could be washing or submerging. Church could be congregation or gathering or assembly. The writers of the, the translators of the King James Version did not want to be like the Puritans who actually translated those words. They wanted to transliterate those words and made a point of it in their introduction. I just thought that was fascinating. Um, in many ways, I really wish they had actually translated those words. Because I think it would change the way that we 
do certain things. If the church is a gathering of Jesus followers, it's simply that. And is it possible that it's that simple and that powerful? That it's not some religious organization with, of the clergy, but that it's a gathering of Jesus followers. And in its simplest form, it's in its most powerful form. It's possible that we've defined church in such a way that we've removed the power and the beauty of church. Don't you think about that. It's possible that we have today defined church in such a way that we have stripped it of its beauty and of its power in its simplicity. And that's a question or a statement that I want us to really chew on today as we spend time in God's Word, um, though I'm sure I will be wrestling with this for quite some time. Uh, this is something that David's been listening to me rant about for months, um, years, okay, years. Um, and I think that if we're going to really look at what the church was designed to be, probably the best place to start would be in the book of Acts. It's a place to start. There's a lot we could go to. But I want us to start in the book of Acts this morning. Um, so if you have your Bibles or if you have your app, to flip over to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Really, the book of Acts is... We call the Acts of the Apostles, probably more appropriately, it would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit because we see what the Spirit is doing through, in and through his, uh, God's people. Um, but the book of Acts is really a lot about the establishment of the church. And in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit shows up big time. I mean, nobody expected what happened. They start speaking in different languages. And people heard the gospel in their own language from people who didn't even know those languages. It was amazing. And the gospel was preached to people from all over the world who came to Jerusalem for this time of Pentecost. And they were able to take the gospel and hear it and respond to it and then go back to their regions with the gospel. The, an amazing missionary movement that God, that God orchestrated. And as they were gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 42, we read the following. My phone. It's embarrassing. What's going on here? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those that accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This day of Pentecost, there was a huge revival that broke out. It's how we would refer to it. And 3,000 people, or 3,000 souls, came to know Christ that day, came to accept the message of the cross that day. What you really have here in Jerusalem is the first ever megachurch. Can I just throw that out there? The first ever, ever megachurch. 3,000 people in one day. Now, actually, what happens is they stay in Jerusalem, even though they were told they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts 8, there's this guy named Saul, who later we call Paul. 
Saul was not a nice guy. Matter of fact, Saul was a really bad guy. He ravaged the church. One, one translation puts it that way, that Saul actually ravaged the church. What a word. And in Acts chapter 8, he persecuted them, and they were dispersed. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Flip ahead there if you were in chapter 2. There was this guy, Stephen, who gave a message that Paul didn't like. So Paul did the only rational thing. He had him stoned to death. Right? That's what you do to people. I'm sorry. No, that's, that's what we do nowadays. We just do it through social media. I'm sorry. I got confused for a second there. So Saul did not like the message of Stephen. So he had him stoned. And he agreed to putting Stephen to death in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now, Judea and Samaria are still the stomping grounds of Israel, but they were scattered. And it kept spreading in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts 11, verse 19. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Uh, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The church continued to grow during this time. The gospel was spread. It went not just to the Jews. It went to the Gentiles as well. Something the church didn't know how to handle, by the way. There was a lot of conflict over that. And then God called aside two men. Paul, and who was the other guy? Barnabas. And called them to take on some missionary journeys to continue to take the gospel to people who had not yet heard. And both Jewish and Gentile churches formed people accepted Christ. The majority of our New Testament is penned by Paul, who was Saul, that horrible guy. I want you to never forget that there is no person that God cannot reach and save. The Apostle Paul, who stoned Stephen and persecuted the church, and ran people out of town, God got a hold of his life and changed him. And he accepted the gospel and became one of the founders of so much of the teaching that we have to churches. He, he helped take the gospel to so much of the world. He wrote a letter to the Romans. Hadn't been there yet, but he wrote a letter to the Romans. Most believe that the church that was in Rome was a house church, kind of the opposite of the megachurch we had in Jerusalem. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, he says this, Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. The church that meets in their home. Maybe you ever attend a home church? I did. I attended a home church. I attended a church that was in a storefront. We used to meet in a storefront. I remember a family coming in and saying, I will never, I told God I would never attend a church that, that met in a storefront. And here I am. Isn't it funny the way God does that? Right? A house church 
in Asia. In many parts of the present-day world, there's a movement called the house church movement. It's actually hitting the U.S. today, by the way. We're kind of catching up with things that are happening in the rest of the world a little bit behind them. And while some may call it a modern fad, I really see it more as reclaiming the church's heritage. That's kind of cool. Like, yeah, we've been here before. We're going back to our roots. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6.19, just to show you how this is true in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6.19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. Colossians 4.15, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. Philemon 2, to Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. There's three of them. By the way, they're all in the Asia area. You notice that the homes that are opened up are predominantly like the women are named here. I think it's pretty cool. The church that meets in their home. That's just so cool. While many Jews followed Jesus and still attended uh, the synagogue, the Gentile churches did not have synagogues, right? They wouldn't have synagogues. Synagogues were for the Jews. So you have Gentiles who come to Christ, and they don't have a place. They don't have a structure that's like theirs. But they know they need to meet, so where do they meet? They meet in homes. It makes sense, right? They didn't have a whole system of religion that went back thousands of years like the Jews did. Instead, they met in homes. Though it said they also had public teaching times as well. Now, I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm not saying that we should or shouldn't have one or the other. I'm pointing out that God used the mega church in Jerusalem that had a building, as well as the house church in Asia. And I think everything in between. Small churches should not be embarrassed, and larger churches should not boast. It's God's church. And it has many expressions, many forms. So whether we meet in a specific building, whether we meet in homes, as long as we meet, we are still the church. And even if we can't meet, we are still the people of God. Did you catch that? Now, after his resurrection, Jesus gave some instructions to his disciples. This was pre-Acts. We call this the great what? Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I noticed that the church didn't go until it was persecuted. Did you notice that? They had this great revival. 3,000 people come out. They all get together. Matter of fact, they start having problems in the church, right? Because some of the widows were not being taken care of. So they have to figure out how to handle all these situations with all of these people now. But they stayed together. I think our tendency, I think our tendency is to congregate. Maybe that's why we call ourselves a congregation, because we like to just be together. But what if, 
what if the church intentionally went out? What if, as a church, we were intentional about spreading to our communities and not focusing primarily on our gatherings? What if? I think we will see as we study the exile that the people of God were meant to be dispersed among the communities, among the nations, share God with their neighbors in the way that they live and the way that they speak. I think you'll see that that's always been God's plan, not just for the Jews, but for the church. And I think that it's possible that we have allowed the mindset of gathering and meeting to blind us to the reality of going and being the church. When David and I have been studying um, and praying about the church, we've really considered the fact that the church was designed to be intentionally scattered. It was designed to saturate communities, to saturate nations and peoples. It was never designed to be a place where everybody comes, but a gathering that continually goes. Now, let me just give you some reality checks. You can't build enough megachurches to truly evangelize our nation. At best, you will reach a fraction of a percent. A fraction of a percent at best. Think about that. It's just not an economic reality. And it's a horrible evangelism strategy. Can I just say that? That's pathetic. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. As long as you can get a percentage of them, a fraction of a percent, we're doing okay. But that's the model that we've adopted in the let's gather as a church instead of let's go and be the church. Now, the home church has its challenges for sure. Um, Often, the home churches we have in the U.S. have started because of a fight in a church, and they can't find a pastor that they agree with, so they start their own church in their home. I don't think that's healthy either. Can I just throw that out there? I think that's a really bad way to multiply churches. Not good. They rarely have the resources that they need for their ministry. They hardly ever have the leadership that they need for outreach and for discipleship. But what if? What if the church was positioned to spread out like the persecuted church while still being connected to a larger church family? What if it was intentional? Not only could it weather possible future government persecutions like some nations have experienced. It would be able to reach more people with the gospel as smaller clusters of believers meet and reach each neighborhood as they become light in the world around them. It would mean that the church would exist without borders, without buildings, or perhaps even without budgets. And that kind of church can't be stopped. 
Remember, God inhabits his people, not buildings. We refer to this as saturation church, where the entire church is on mission to reach their communities by having smaller gatherings of God's people, like micro churches. Remember, a church is a gathering of Christ followers, right? So if you get together with another family that are Christ followers, you got a church. You're thinking, no, 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 we don't. That's because you're thinking of the American word church and not the original word church, which means a gathering, a fellowship, getting together. If you hear us talking about missional families over the last couple of years, this is part of the way that we're trying to reimagine what it means to be the church. However, to have a structure like that would mean a drastic shift in what a church does on a daily or weekly basis, wouldn't it? So I want us to rethink the activity of a church. I think that if we think about the different churches mentioned in the book of Acts, it might actually change some expectations that we have regarding what the church does when it meets together. I would imagine the Jewish congregations meeting in Jerusalem had a lot different Sabbath experience than the Gentile churches meeting in Asia. Would you agree? I don't think it was anything alike. I mean, it's just you're talking two totally different people groups. For us, it'd be like going to Lewis County, right? It's a whole different world down there. Actually, for us, it'd be more like going to the city because we're from the, the rural areas. City church is a lot different than rural church, I think, anyway. I'd imagine a Jewish congregation meeting in Jerusalem in a synagogue would have a much different liturgy, a much different expression of worship than a Gentile church meeting in someone's home. What did the church do when they met? And I think for that, we have to get out of our mindset of what we think a church is supposed to be doing and what we've been programmed that a church is supposed to be doing, which is literally what I got when I was in college. They told us what we needed to do. Remember, I went to many classes that told me as a pastor all the things I needed to be able to do to be a pastor so the church could do what a church needs to do. Okay. It gets confusing fast. It gets overwhelming even faster. But what did the church actually do? in the book of Acts? And what should a church really be doing? And to go back to that question, have we taken something that God meant to be so simple and so powerful through its simplicity and made it so complicated that it's become almost ineffective to reach the world around us? What did they do? Immediately after Pentecost, we see the first mention of corporate church activity. The things they did when they got together. So Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, those four things have become the cornerstones and the pillars of many New Testament churches today. Teaching, fellowship, meals. It also says, as you continue to read, they sold their possessions and gave to each other as they had need. I'm not saying you need to do that today. I think there were some specific things that took place in Jerusalem that required that at that time. But they were devoted to certain things. In Acts chapter 20, on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, 
He kept on talking until midnight. I think this is a great model for churches today. Right? They got together, they had a meal, and then Paul just taught them from like lunch until midnight. In fact, he kept going so long that there was a guy sitting in the windowsill that fell out the windowsill and died. He had to go back down and like resurrect him. Just going to let you know, if you fall out a window, God has not given me that gift. You can call and I'll pray, but I can't promise anything, right? They spent all afternoon in God's word. We get mad if the pastor goes past noon, right? Start fidgeting, looking at our watch. Man, I got, there's a game coming up. I got, I got things I got to do, pastor. Don't you know what's going on? Finish up. Land the plane. We got to go. They spent the whole day together just spending time learning from Paul. So on that particular day, they got together and they actually had a meal and they spent time just learning God's word together. I love the fact that they broke bread. Now, there's another thing that we have kind of taken into one context in the church. Because anytime you hear breaking bread, you immediately think of what? Communion. Right. See, I all do it. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, they did that. But that was part of their meal. Like, they had the whole meal together. When was the last time you sat down and had a meal with your church family? In your home. And spent the whole day with them. That's what they did. Say that today, and you're some kind of weird cult. Don't drink the grape juice. This was normal for them to spend that time together. They broke bread. They had a meal. They, they spent time together. There's a lot that the church did. In Acts chapter 6, they took care of feeding the widows. They met physical needs of others. The church fought for the rights of the oppressed and elevated the position of slaves and women. Do you realize that? The church did that. <laughs> I, want to read, I want to do something with you. I want to do an experiment with you here. I want to read this to you, and I want to change a couple words and prepositions. I want to see if the statement makes a difference, because I want you to see how we've adopted different concept of church than what the New Testament has. There is a lot that the church did. In Acts 6, it took care of feeding widows, it met physical needs of others. It fought for the rights of the oppressed and elevated the positions of slaves and women. I want to reread that. There's a lot that the gathering of Jesus followers did. In Acts 6, they took care of the widows. They met the physical needs of others. And they fought for the rights of the oppressed and elevated the positions of slaves and women. We refer to the church as an it. When the church is a, is a we and a they, and it changes our perspective. The church does this. We do this. Different perspective. The church is an easy way to say, let somebody else do it. Right? That's what the church does. What you really mean is that's what we pay the pastors to do, or that's why we have deacons, or that's why these other people's ministries are. But the church, if it's truly a gathering of Jesus' followers, is every one of us. They did these things, which is why the Apostle Paul can say over and over again, do these things. James could say, do these things to every believer in the church, because that's what the church is, the gathering of Jesus followers. So what else did they do? They fasted, Acts chapter 14, verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord 
in whom they had believed. There's something we don't do much in America today. I do this a lot more, um, I learned from my son and daughter-in-law, they do this quite a bit more in Colombia and other countries. There's a lot more fasting than we practice here in the United States. I think we should get back to doing more of it, frankly. Later, Paul instructs young Timothy about his duties as an elder. And he says to him, um, and Timothy is serving in Ephesus, okay, which is in Asia Minor. And in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says this, Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. So it would be typical, by the way, in a Jewish community to come to the synagogue, and you wouldn't have a sermon, per se. It's all a separate topic we're going to cover in a different message. But you would have a public reading. Somebody would stand up and pick up the scroll and just read to you God's word. There's something you don't see. I mean, what if you showed up next week and I just took out my Bible and just read to you the book of Deuteronomy and we prayed and I sent you home? You'd be like, okay, that was weird. Kind of looking for a little more than that. That would be typical in many cultures to just have the scripture reading. How about um, this idea of, of exhortation, which is encouraging or correcting? And then also teaching. We're going to talk about the difference between teaching and preaching again in another message, but there would be teaching time when they got together. Local churches also sang, but the word of Christ will dwell in you richly, Colossians 3.16, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now, while we do offer public meetings, and we offer music, and we offer prayer, and we offer teaching and preaching, I think what they've come to mean in our modern culture has morphed quite a bit from what would have been experienced in the New Testament church. And in some ways, it could be good. In other ways, it, it, it might not be so good. Which is why we need to wrestle with this. If you read the New Testament, you find letters to churches telling people how to get along and how to stay on mission. You'll find, you'll find confrontation of sin and encouragement to live in continual love for one another. You want a great study? Study the New Testament on the phrase, one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Lift each other up. Build up one another. Meet the needs of one another. It goes on and on and on. I promise it will deepen your understanding of what the church is supposed to be doing. You cannot truly comprehend the activity of the church apart from one another. Did you catch that? You cannot truly comprehend what the church was meant to be apart from relationship with one another. Try to read any of your New Testament books written to the churches and disassociate relationship. You can't. It has to involve relationship. And yet, the majority of our churches focus on a Sunday meeting, weekly programs, but not a lot of relationship. Can we be honest about that? I mean, we think, we think Facebook is relationships. It's not. 
It's not. It might help me know what's going on in your life if I take enough time to read through everybody's posts, but it's not relationship. You want me to prove it to you? If you're married, spend the next week on your phone looking at Facebook instead of spending time with your spouse and tell me how that goes for you. Right? Relationship requires time together and investment in each other and serving one another and loving one another enough to be able to get mad at each other and to work through issues together. That's what relationship is all about. The reason I bring up marriage at this point is because I think that probably the best understanding of what the church is meant to be comes down to marriage. And so if you're single, I apologize if you feel isolated at this point, not on purpose. But this is what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we have this passage that we use in weddings all the time, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I want to read that passage together because I want you to catch a phrase that we often skim over to understand what it means to be the church. Ephesians chapter 5, great one to bookmark in your Bibles. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. We are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? You realize that Jesus left his father to come and be his bride? That he left his father's house to come and to claim his bride and to purify her and to be in relationship with her because he loves his bride. And his bride is the church. Wait a minute. We use that church term again. His bride is every Jesus follower. Can you imagine the modern-day construct of the church being a bride? What kind of relationship would that bride have with its groom? I believe the church has exchanged relationship for industry. We view the church as a business that exists to serve the needs of membership and efficiently grow the organization rather than the bride of Christ, the people he loves. And cherishes. And when I say I believe that we have done this, let me just say that as a pastor, I will have to be one of the first ones to take the blame for that. Right? To be more concerned about the programs that we offer and how we're taking care of all of these situations and having the right ministries so that we can grow and these programs, as opposed to helping people understand what it means to truly love God and love others in relationship. 
I'm guilty of that. My function as an elder is to help prepare each of us as the bride of Christ. That's not just doing things. That's becoming the person he's created us to be. It's learning how to love each other. It's learning how to love them. The church is called to relationship and representation. So a healthy theology of church has nothing to do with buildings or programs or versions of the Bible or music styles or times of service. A healthy theology of the church is one that understands our individual calling, individual calling, to live with and for God and others in this world that we are exiles in. A healthy theology of church is one that understands our individual calling to live with and for God and others in the world we are exiles in. As we wrap up our time this morning, I know I've gone, well, that's about normal. I, I'm going to be going later since the pandemic. Um, some of you are like, yeah, we've been rethinking our whole church thing since the pandemic too, Pastor Mike. As we wrap up our time together this morning, I want to challenge you with some questions to help us think through the expectations that we have about the church. First of all, there's been a lot of studies about whether or not people will come back to the gatherings, right? Have you, have you read any of those? Or it's like, some people are like, no, I'm never going back. It's too nice to stay home, sit in my living room, and uh, watch on TV, you know, tune into the YouTube channel, watch the talking heads on the screen. Quite a few of them actually don't plan on coming back. If you stop attending meetings and just stay at home, are you still a part of the church? I guess if we go back to the original definition of church, the answer has to be no. It has to absolutely be no, because the church is a gathering. We cannot be an assembly or a gathering while in isolation. So in that sense, the church would cease, just as public worship ceased for the Jews in exile. Perhaps you felt the isolation and emptiness of not being able to get together over the past few months. Anybody else felt that? It's that isolation and emptiness of like, oh, I cannot wait to be back with people. I need to be around people. I need fellowship. I need to be able to get together. How many of you have like felt that? Any? Yeah. It's, it's what? If, can I just say that that's from God? Okay. We were meant to be in relationship, and when we don't have that, there's a longing. This is why Nehemiah cried when he heard the news of Jerusalem and that the people were not getting together for worship, and we're not serving God together. There's a longing inside every one of us to be connected to God and others, especially as the people of God. You cannot shake that. We were meant to be a family, to have all things in common, to share meals, to live life together. And anything that's less than that is less than the ideal that God has for his church. Now, I do want to say this. Just like the Jews were in exile... They still remain the people of God, though they couldn't meet together. I made the statement that the church would cease to be the church, the gathering, if we did not meet. does not mean we cease to be the people of God. Can, can we just be clear on that? I'm not saying that, you know, that we would just stop being special to God, his children. 
But I also think that if we have the opportunity to meet and we don't, the Bible teaches that we're in sin, that we were meant to be a part of each other's lives, that we are called to be together when we can. I think the second question I want us to wrestle with is if we were not allowed to meet like the Jews in exile, would your faith grow? Would your children grow in their faith and understanding of God? If we were in exile for 70 years like the Jews, without a chance to get together and meet on a Sunday morning or Zoom in or catch a YouTube live feed to hear God's word, would you still be growing in your faith and would your children grow up with a knowledge of God and an understanding of who he is? For the Jews in exile, that was the requirement for 70 years. For the persecuted church in the New Testament and the churches in Asia, that was their requirement too. As you wrestle with this, perhaps you can ask what your expectation of the church is in those areas. And does it line up with the church in Acts? Have we relegated discipleship to the church leadership instead of our own responsibility? Chew on that. Third, if the church truly is people, and it is, and those people are called to sing and pray and read God's word and have meals together and to share the gospel together and to be lights in their community, Are you being the church? Let's just throw it out there. Are you attending church or are you being the church? And this is not a simple yes or no question, though I pose it that way. If all the Bible is summed up in two commandments, and those two commandments are to do what? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, or heart, soul, mind, and strength, in which verse you're reading. The second one is to love your neighbor self. Perhaps we should approach church from this lens. How can I partner with these people to grow in my love for God and others? How can I partner with these people to grow in my love for others? Can I tell you that is not the mindset that most people come to church with? I thought about making a list of why people come to churches and what they're looking for in churches. And I thought instead I'd let you ponder that. Why do you go to a church? Why do you attend a Sunday morning with a church family? What do you go in expectation of? Is it that you will find a group of believers that you can become a part of the family with to not only grow in love for them, which means you're going to get mad at some of them sometimes. You're probably even going to feel abandoned by some of them sometimes. Possible you could even be really hurt and not even want to be around Christians sometimes. But love is not always sunshine and skittles, right? Is it po- Do you come to the church looking for relationships that you can work through to truly learn how to show God's love to each other? how to love God more, and how to share that with the world around you. I think if we approach church from that perspective, it would certainly change the way that church looks to those outside the walls, as well as when we meet on Sunday mornings. 
Brothers and sisters, God did not call us to liturgy and programming. He did not call us to buildings and budgets. God called the church to relationship and mission. It's that simple. What if the real concept of church is much simpler than we've morphed it into? And much more effective and powerful than we've experienced. If our expectation of church has hindered our ability to be the people of God and to take the good news of Jesus to the world around us, then we're on dangerous ground. I really enjoyed studying the book of First John. Um, there's a group of you that were a part of that. We did it through Zoom. Actually had our last meeting together, which was kind of weird. It's like, oh, so that's like you in real life. That's really cool. And as John approached the church, he told them about false teachings, and he told them how, what to be careful of in certain areas and how to live as people of the light and how to abide in God and how to love God's people, all these things that we're talking about what the church is supposed to be doing. At the end of the book, he throws in a verse that just seems so out of place, you don't know what to do with it. And so you really think about what he's saying. And I want to leave us with that verse this morning to ponder. As we think about all the things the church is supposed to be, and what a church is truly supposed to do, Maybe what we believe the church is supposed to be and do is different from what God has. John says this. All this teaching in the, God, in the book of 1 John, and he ends with this one sentence that just seems to be out of, out of the blue. He says, little children, guard yourself from idols. He didn't talk about idols anywhere in his book. I didn't talk about idols anywhere in this message. But anything that we hold in higher regard than God himself becomes an idol. And it's possible that we have taken the church and made certain things about the church idols. Whether it's programs or buildings or liturgies, we've made them more important than our relationship with God himself. That's what I want us to wrestle with as we continue to go through the exile. Because as we study the exile together, you're going to see what God is most concerned about. And it's not going to be the system of sacrifices. And it's not going to be the temple. And it's not going to be the... It's going to be about a relationship. And that's what the church needs to be about today. So I want you to wrestle with what have you expected of the church what do you think a church should be? And then realize you and I are the church. So what are we to do? How are we going to be the church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your plan for the church is so much more amazing than we could ever imagine. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for making it so much more complicated than it needs to be. God, I know that we have come to gather with all sorts of expectations in our hearts and in our minds. That we've been programmed over the years of experience to think a certain way. But I pray, Father, that you would 
search us and know us, that you would strip away from me any man-made systems that I've created that keep us from effectively loving you, being in relationship with you, and sharing you with the world around us. Father, show us the idols that we've created. Help us to return to be the bride that you've called us to be. Teach us to fall in love with you again. Not to be so caught up in the things that we think are important, but just to be swept away with you. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you call us to be your family. Thank you that you want a relationship with us and that you give us the joy and privilege of not only being with you, but of serving with you in your message and your mission of reconciliation. Father, teach us to be your people. Help us to truly, as a gathered group of faithful followers of Jesus Christ, to represent you well to the world around us, we pray. Amen. So I want to thank you for sticking through that. If you have questions, um, the live feed is probably being cut by now. It's good. Uh, if you have questions, we're going to entertain those questions. You're like, wait a minute, you're going to take questions? Did you know that they did that too? We're going to talk about that when we talk about preaching and teaching. Uh, if you have questions, we'll entertain questions. Um, if you have prayer requests, we'll take those as well. And then I'm going to have David um, close us out in prayer for the specific prayer requests. So you can be taking notes if you need to. Um, that, was your, that was your warning. So any questions or comments, first of all, or thoughts? Yes, ma'am.